Section 3 of National Geographic Magazine, Volume 2, Numbers 3 to 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andre Hughes. The Arctic Cruise of the USS Thetis in the Summer and Autumn of 1889 by Charles Herbert Stockton Part Number 3 Sleeping soundly that night for the first time in many days, the following morning boat parties were dispatched to complete the circumnavigation of the island and to make running surveys in the vicinity. A small snug harbor was found and surveyed nearby our anchorage, capable of receiving vessels of less than 16 feet draught. This was named Pauline Cove. It would prove a fairly good place for one of the light-draught steamers going up this year to use as winter quarters. The waters between Herschel Island and the mainland were found after examination too full of shoals and sand and gravel bars to form a ship channel. A rise and fall of tide of three feet was found, and the ship swung regularly to an ebb and flood. While the boats were out sounding, I went ashore, and climbing nearly to the top of the island, had a beautiful view of the clear and open water of Mackenzie Bay to the east and northeast, while to the southeastward were the islands clustering about the shallow mouth of the Mackenzie, and directly to the south were the British and Buckland Mountains, merging gradually into the Rocky Mountains and the great chains which form the backbone of the American continent. The temperature of the water and air was found higher upon this side of the island and I have no doubt but that the climate of the vicinity of Mackenzie Bay is materially modified by the comparatively warm water coming out in great volume from the Mackenzie River. The strong current running to the northward from the river would naturally sweep the ice out of the bay and to the northward as far as the vicinity of Banksland and the extreme northern Arctic. Where it goes to and where it ceases is now a matter of conjecture. It is to be hoped that the drift floats, which were launched by us from this point, and from various points between here and Herald Island, may contribute something to the solution of this question, as the chances of being shut in by the ice were easily among the possibilities to the whalers who were in our company, and with whose fate our companion the Beluga had joined for the time. The whole question of supplies and retreat was gone over with the whaling masters. A retreat up the valley of the Mackenzie, the porcupine and yukon seemed feasible, as reindeer were to be found in this vicinity in the winter months. As the masters of the whalers would not return with me to the eastward, I determined to start back in order to make my westerly cruise with the sailing fleet. Recalling the boats, we got under way, standing first to the northeast to put over the first drift float clear of the tidal influence of the waters immediately about Herschel Island and in the open water and northerly current of the Mackenzie. These floats were made of wood about two feet long and nine inches thick with the name of the ship, the date, and the words for drift cut upon the face. In a cavity at one end of the float, plugged with soft wood, there was placed a copper cylinder containing a letter requesting the finder to inform the U.S. Hydrographic Office at Washington, the nearest U.S. consul, or the commanding officer of the Thetis, the time and place where the float was found. 
After launching the float upon its unknown journey, a lookout was sent to the highest masthead. From there it was reported to the northward and northeastward there was nothing in sight but open water. Neither ice nor ice blink was visible, and the western entrance to the northwest passage stretched before us invitingly, as clear and as free as the waters of our own Chesapeake Bay. But I had reached my limit, and turning back, to the regret of many on board, faced once more the icy sea that lay before us toward Point Barrow and the westward. The weather, however, was superb, clear, cold, and sunny during the day, while in the now darkening shades of the evening for the first time the moon appeared, silvering most beautifully the chain of mountains along the coast and the fantastic shapes of the grounded ice. On the 17th we began to meet and overtake the whalers, who still delayed in the vicinity of Camden Bay, waiting for whales. Five were passed, some cruising and some fast to the ice floes. After communicating with them and informing them of our probable movements, we kept on to the westward. The ice conditions were favorable, and we made very good headway, making fast to an ice floe off our old island friends of the Midway Group on the evening of the 17th of August. The wind is always a subject of constant watchfulness and anxiety in this part of the Arctic. It virtually makes the currents and brings down the ice or sends it off and clears a narrow lane along the shoreline. A northerly shift of wind caused a desire to push on, and passing on we sighted return reef again and skirted along the long and narrow island which now bears the name of the Thetis. Passing the mouth of the Colville, we steamed at a good rate of speed through Harrison Bay, and found there the wind blowing strong from the west, bringing much ice with it, and accompanied by a cold fog. The outlook being discouraging, I determined to press on for Point Barrow, not very far distant. The early morning of the 19th of August opened cloudy, overcast and cold, with a gale and snow from the westward, the ice increasing in quantity and size. There being no protection from the wind this side of Point Barrow, I ordered full speed so as to get to the point and beyond it before the almost inevitable shift to the northward, which would bring the ice down and shut us out. The leads between the ice flows became narrower and fewer in number, and but little better outlook was found as we edged inshore as far as the shoal water would allow us to go. At this time we sighted as many as eight polar bears on the ice, but this was no time to hunt bear. Coming to the end of our lead, we rammed through some pack ice into another one, which, however, again led into water too shoal for us. Finding from my perch aloft that the ice seemed even heavier to the west, I determined to stand back to the eastward into the more open water we had left by the lead we had come through. But it was too late. This lead had closed and we were prisoners in the pact. There being no other place to go, I reluctantly selected the largest pool, or pocket, got out our ice anchors, and made fast to a heavy flow to await further developments. It was found to be in slow motion, 
and four times during the night we had to move to avoid the heavy flows closing in around us. From this time the 19th until the morning of the 24th, we were close prisoners in the heavy pack which had set down with the wind, now northerly between Point Barrow and Point Tangent. In the words of the ancient mariner of Coolidge, The ice was here, the ice was there, the ice was all around. It crackled and growled, and roared and howled, like noises in a swound. By incessant watchfulness, almost constant movement, vigorous ramming, faithful working of the engines, and most important of all, a favorable shift of wind, the good ship, under divine providence, escaped without damage or accident, fortunately within easy reach of land, and but twenty-five miles from Point Barrow Refuge Station, I had no undue anxiety for life. But I had no hesitation in stating that the readiness, endurance, and subordination of the officers and men of the ship shown in the bringing out of the ship intact from the ice pack, after nearly five days' imprisonment, entitle them to great credit from the proper authorities and justify their commanding officer in the present expression of his high appreciation of their conduct and his warm feelings towards themselves. About noon of the 25th of August, after a night of hard ramming, we anchored off the west side of Point Barrow, greeted by salutes from the whalers anchored there and by the hearty congratulations of the masters, who soon came on board and learned for the first time that Mackenzie Bay had been reached. We found that the sailing fleet had gone to the westward, after having been shut in by the ice coming down on Point Barrow and Cape Smythe for several days during our absence. The few whalers that remained had been watching us from their crow's nests during our imprisonment, but were unable, of course, to afford us any assistance, each ship having to work out her own salvation. Companion vessels are of great service only in case of damage or abandonment. Fortunately, the steam whalers remaining behind us did not have the pack set down upon them in the shallow bights in which they were cruising and the long-continued northeaster which aided us in our escape enabled them to find leads to get through, not very long after we had escaped. We remained at Point Barrow for a week until they had all returned, except the two most easterly ones left at Herschel Island. As their return was so uncertain, at the end of a week I dropped down to the House of Refuge at Cape Smythe, landing provisions to fill the deficiency in their stores, and went to the westward first going to Icy Cape to erect a needed beacon as a warning of the vicinity of Blossom Shoals. Leaving this vicinity on the 5th of September for the northward and westward and rounding Blossom Shoals, we stood to the north, reaching the supposed vicinity of the edge of the ice pack that night. As the nights were now dark, we lay to until morning, when the rapid fall of the temperature of the water and the lessening wind gave indications of its proximity and a half-hour's steaming brought us to the rugged white outline of the pack. Along this we skirted, having reached our highest north, less than 72 degrees north latitude. All of that day and the next we continued our course, sighting a portion of the sailing fleet of whalers on the 7th. 
communicating with them of our proposed movements and whereabouts during the rest of September and the beginning of October, we then stood to the westward. I must not forget to mention an interesting incident that occurred. A schooner stood down to us from the fleet and was recognized as the schooner Jane Grey, picked up by the Thetis when under the command of my predecessor the previous summer in the ice, abandoned. She had been righted, pumped out, repaired, and restored to her owner, who had literally sold his farm and put his all into the vessel. As he came within hail, our notification was given him, but I noticed that he fairly danced with impatience during its delivery, which was accounted for at the end of the message by his bringing out his men, who were gathered behind the foresail, and giving hearty and prolonged cheers for the Thetis, which fairly rang in the silent Arctic air. To this we responded, and then went on our way. We now left the pack and steered through open water for Herald Island, which we sighted at half-past twelve the next day, the 8th of September. As we approached it closely, the bareness and forbidding appearance which had been concealed at first sight by the bluish dimness of the outline became very marked. Its sides were almost inaccessible, except from the western end, and it was free from ice, an almost exceptional state of affairs. In close seasons it is impossible to reach it, and even more than Point Barrow, it may be shut out of the world by ice that refuses to move during the short summer. We passed the island late in the afternoon with a comparatively short distance, standing on to the west with the hope of seeing Wrangell land before dark. At half-past five, land was reported ahead from aloft, and soon the high, snowy peaks and mountainous outline of Wrangell land was sighted from deck. It stood out beautifully in the late Arctic afternoon, and as we approached it more closely, its outline became more and more fantastic and brilliant. At sunset, we were a little over ten miles distant, and at dark as we turned to the southeast for Point Hope, we exchanged hearty congratulations upon our successful passage from Mackenzie Bay to Wrangelland. Arriving at Point Hope upon the evening of the 10th of September, we found that many of the hunting parties had returned from the interior, and preparations were going on for the winter season. The natives of Point Hope, like the Eskimos, generally of northwestern Alaska, have no tribal or other form of government except what exists by control of the headman, Komalik, or chief, whose superiority arises from his wealth and influence. The previous chief had lived a life that made him a terror to the community. His rule was by force alone and by the influence of the rifle, which was his inseparable companion. After a career distinguished for license, murder, and robbery, he had come to a timely end by being assassinated by the brother of a wife he was tormenting to death. Since his death, up to the time of our stay in September, anarchy had prevailed. On account of the very indifferent treatment received by the survivors of the wrecked whaler, Little Ohio, from the Eskimos at Point Hope the previous winter, I determined to appoint a headman or chief who would be charged with the responsibility and duty of caring for any shipwrecked persons or destitute whites. Anokalut, 
who was appointed by me and whose appointment was afterwards confirmed by the governor of alaska had married the niece of the previous chief and was the best whaleman and hunter of the district he had been in the employ of the whaling station established the previous year at point hope and had been satisfactory in all his dealings with the whites his wife was a very superior woman and their desire for civilized usages was so great that a bread pan of tin some granite ware bowls and candles were given and eagerly accepted as contributing to make their domestic lives more comfortable and civilized an urgent request was made for a cooking stove which i promised to give them if i should return the following summer the eskimo lamp which served as a light and to some extent as a stove is a crescent-shaped stone utensil with a shallow trough scooped out this is a receptacle for the whale oil the wick being some native moss laid along the edge of the lamp and trimmed from time to time the supply of oil being kept up by a lump of blubber suspended over the lamp the light being indifferent candles are welcomed as a great improvement and a marked relief to the overtaxed eyes of the men and women during the long nights of the arctic winter during our stay at point hope we found much of interest in connection with the eskimos living there their long winters give them an opportunity to keep alive their traditions in their daily meetings in the council house and they give an account of their early days in this wise in the beginning the people had heads like ravens with eyes in the upper part of their breasts all of the world at this time was wrapped in gloom with no change of day and night at that time there lived a powerful chieftain on the top of the highest peak in his hut were suspended two balls that were considered very precious and therefore carefully guarded one day the chief being absent and the guards asleep some children who had long admired the beautiful balls knocked them down with a stick and they rolled across the floor of the hut and down the side of the mountain the noise awakened the guards who hurried after them while their extraordinary beauty attracted the attention of the people who also rushed after them a wild struggle ensuing for their possession this ended in the breaking of the balls light sprang from one and darkness from the other these spirits of light and darkness claimed sole dominion but neither yielding a compromise was made by which they agreed to an alternate rule the violent struggle for the mastery so disturbed the world that the anatomy of the people and the surface of the earth were both changed light being upon the earth men began to catch whales in the sea and to carry the flesh and the bones to their mountain homes one family wandering over the country recently risen from the sea came down upon point hope finding vegetation springing up and whales abundant they built a hut and made it their home from this originated the settlement at point hope their modern history goes on in this wise point hope being favorably situated for whaling and hunting the seal and walrus and for obtaining the reindeer it naturally became a center of power and population in the latter part of the eighteenth century as well as can be determined the village upon Point Hope, known by the natives as Tigara, 
had a population of 2,000 souls, with six council houses. At that time, the Eskimos residing upon the Noatok, or Inland River, began to encroach upon the territory of the Tigaramutes until matters came to the pass that about the beginning of this century, a great land and boat fight took place between the Tigaramutes and the Noatokmutes near Cape Seppings, in which the Tigaramutes were defeated and forced to yield a large portion of the territory formerly controlled by them. So crushed were the Tigaramutes that they lost one half of their population, which led to the gradual abandonment of all the outstanding villages. Since this time, the population has gradually decreased, the diminution being materially aided by the contact of whites, who are principally represented here by the crews of whaling ships rendezvousing during the early summer. As a rule, the Arctic coast Eskimos are short in stature, the average height of 10 men measured at Point Hope being 5 feet 5.8 inches, and of 10 women, 5 feet 2.4 inches. The legs are short in comparison to the length of the body, and are always much bowed, this being due to the manner in which they are carried in infancy upon their mother's back, the legs being brought tightly around under the mother's arms. The feet and hands of the women are generally well-shapen and small. All of the Eskimos have good teeth, but as they are subjected to the severe usage, they deteriorate in every way. They are used as substitutes for pincers, carpenter's vices, and fluting machines. They are used in drawing bolts, untying knots, holding the mouthpiece of a drill, shaping boot soles, and stretching skins. When they become uneven from constant use in this way, the unevenness is corrected by a leveling down by means of a file or a whetstone until they finally reach a level too low for mechanical purposes. Between 16 and 22 years of age, the male natives have their lips pierced under each corner of the mouth for labrets. The incision is made and at first sharp pointed pieces of ivory are put in. When the wound heals, the hole is gradually stretched by inserting larger labrets until half an inch in diameter is reached. The poorer natives wear labrets made of coal, walrus ivory, common gravel, and glass stoppers which they obtain from ships and adapt to this use. The stopper of a Worcestershire sauce bottle is very useful for this purpose. The richer ones have a gate labrets. The most valued one, however, consisting of a white porcelain-like disc, one inches wide, in the center of which is mounted a turquoise nut, hemispherical in shape, nearly an inch wide, fastened with a spruce gum obtained from the interior. We could not ascertain where the turquoise or porcelain-like disc was obtained. The Eskimos say they have always been in the country, and sell them only with the greatest reluctance. Tattooing is general among the women, and is apparently a custom of great antiquity. At the age of six, one narrow line is drawn down the center of the chin from the lower lip downward, powdered charcoal being used as a coloring matter. At twelve years, the line is broadened to half an inch, and a narrow line made parallel to it on each side. But I will not detain you by giving other particulars. On the 20th of September, the Thetis left Point Hope for the south, 
the rugged season of the Arctic Ocean having fully set in. Strong winds and gales from the northeast had compelled us to move from the northern to the southern side of Point Hope, where better protection and anchorage had been found. On the 21st of September, we passed out of the Arctic Ocean and through the Bering Strait, reaching Onalaska again on the 26th of September. After remaining there until the beginning of October, the ship returned to Sitka, and after a prolonged stay in the waters of southeastern Alaska, we finally reached the Golden Gate of San Francisco, shortly after midnight on the 7th of December. The cruise of the Thetis was remarkable in several respects, among others in that, thanks to the open season, her stanch build, and successful battling with the ice pack, she was enabled to reach Mackenzie Bay in British North America, the first government vessel to carry the American flag in those waters. She also made the long stretch from Mackenzie Bay to Herald Island and Wrangelland in one season, never before done. And she had the honor of being the first vessel of any kind to follow the entire main coastline of Alaska, from Port Tongass in extreme southeastern Alaska to Demarcation Point in the Arctic Ocean. End of section three.